everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, day two of the MLS's back tournament is in the books, and we got twice as much soccer as yesterday. Yeah, twice as much. We got another version of Taylor Tolman and John Champion, but we also got to watch a game on Twitter, which That's was kind of right. cool. Even though mine cut off right at the end. Yeah, mine thankfully did not. I was not watching on Twitter. I know you and a number of other people who actually were on the Twitter stream did not have that same luxury. You were watching it on TV. I was, yes. So okay. I did not have to deal with that early cut. All right. Well, there you go. This is this is why we work well together. <laughs> you, you pick up all the pieces that I leave behind. I watched the last minute and a half of stoppage time <laughs> in the 97th minute. Uh, <laughs> I'm happy for that to be my role. Right. So before we spoil the scorelines from Thursday, July 9th games, uh, if you haven't had a chance to watch those games yet and you don't want to know the scores, I'm going to give you just a second or two to turn off the show and pause it to listen later. <laughs> OK, I've, I've vamped enough. That should be enough time. Here we go. Jordan, you and I are here to comb through the Philadelphia Union's one nil win over NYCFC and the New England Revolution's one nil win over the Montreal Impact. But before we get to those games, the Athletic broke some news earlier today that affects the whole structure of this tournament. Jordan, can you break down that Nashville news for us? For us, we've talked about this a number of times is we're in the middle of a global pandemic and there are a lot of serious things happening. What happened with FC Dallas is the positive tests that were within the team took them out of the tournament earlier this week. And that th same thing was kind of stirring with Nashville. We kind of thought that that was the way that it was going to go. Uh, they hinted at it yesterday during the broadcast. And then as of today, officially, uh, Nashville was removed from the tournament. So they were in that crazy group A of six teams. And what happened because two teams are now out of the tournament due to positive COVID tests that then actually restructures the tournament in a way that is, I think, a little bit easier for everybody to understand. Yeah. Chicago Fire then t moved from Group A into Group B, and every group now has four teams. So structurally, it makes sense. You just got to feel for these teams, this FC Dallas team, this uh, Nashville SC team. This is something that I talked about or I was feeling over the last couple of weeks in NWSL, it happened with the, with the Orlando Pride as well. And it just is hard. These players have been working really hard and for them to get taken out of a tournament because of something that really is not very much in their control is really disappointing. It's and a, they, I'm sure they're very disappointed. It's a difficult thing to have been sort of dropped out of this tournament and now they're still stuck in Orlando. They're yeah. in, in, in Orlando in the hotel there. And it's just a really difficult waiting game that uh, I don't envy being in that position. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's the that's the structural news of the tournament. Now we're moving on to the actual games from Thursday, July 9th, starting with Philadelphia's 1-0 win over NYCFC, as I said a moment ago. Jordan, we know how these two teams like to play. We know how mm -hmm. they set up. Philly plays in that 4-4-2 diamond. NYCFC played in a, a flexible 4-3-3 with those three central midfielders rotating in different spots. Um, so we know how these guys play. But I want to ask you this question, Jordan, even though they won this match, did the union do anything tactically or structurally well in this game? Because we texted earlier and I don't think either one of us saw a whole lot. 
Yeah, I think that we're going to see... Now we've seen two of the different game times, right? We've seen the 9 a.m. game time, Eastern time, and we've seen the 8 p.m. Eastern time. Um, We've still yet to see that 10.30 p.m. game, which I think is going to add something different, some different fatigue factor. For us, it'll add a fatigue factor. Yeah, right? Uh, I think for this 9 a.m. game, I don't think it started slow. I think it definitely progressed as the game went on, which... You and I would agree that all three of the games have been progressing as the the time on the clock ticks on, just due to the fact that these teams haven't played together in three and a half months. The rust is real. I mean, they, the commentators have said it on the broadcast, and it's clear to see in both of the games from today. Right. So I think for the Union, do they do anything tactically well? I, I, I do think that they've defended well as a unit, and there were times where they look like they made it difficult for the other for New York City to break them down and i one of the things i noticed was just their variety of pressure is the first half you almost saw them get a little bit too stretched in between that that first line of pressure and everybody else and i feel like they changed that going into the second half and they made themselves compact again and really went as a unit which is going to be key right if you're going to go as a team you have to go together like Right now, especially because if one person doesn't do their job, then the whole thing breaks down. So I think that as it, I think if you're talking tactics, well, that's a tactic. Like, who are we as a unit? Sure. And I think that grew a little bit in throughout the game. That's fair. I mean, this game, the first half was not particularly entertaining. I was drawn from a Philadelphia perspective outside of the goal, which we'll talk about in just a second. I was drawn Mm -hmm. to some individual performances more than anything. Andre Blake in goal, I thought had a couple of really nice saves, which is not the best uh, representation for the union, right? They wouldn't necessarily want that to have had to be in the case in the first place. But he made some big saves after the last couple of seasons where he hasn't put up great numbers in MLS. Um, Brendan Aronson as well, I thought had some really nice moments. He's still inconsistent, but like 15 seconds into this match, he had a beautiful feint yeah. and, and turn and used his body to be able to spin and move the ball forward. Mark McKenzie as well is a, is a third quick guy that I wanted to touch on. As a center back, his ball playing ability and ability to step in and win the ball in the first place, I was impressed by as well. I would agree. I think Aronson is just so clever in his movements, and I really... One of the things I think you will see over and over from him as that attacking-minded center midfielder is this inside-out run where he mm. almost like button hooks along the edge of the 18 to slip in. And it's it, it sometimes can even be Bedoya who's found himself all the way on the outside of the box and is threading that pass through to him. But then when he gets there, this is, this is, I call him slippery and you make fun of me for it because <laughs> he is slippery. He had one time where he beat a defender like three times on the, the end of edge of the box, uh, right on the end line and then connected to get out of that space. And he, he did have a good performance. I think on the other end of things, talking about New York City FC, Cassianos had a, I thought he was one of the best players for New York City FC. He was at least eager to try to make something happen. Yeah, I really am a big fan of Castellanos. He can play anywhere in that front line. He played on the left side of that 4-3-3, that flexible 4-3-3 in this game. And he can tuck in, moving centrally on his right foot and play off of Maxi Morales or a bear. And that's a really nice movement. The one thing I want to say about this is because we did a homegrown episode and Mark McKenzie wasn't on our list of homegrowns, although he was an honorable mention, right? 
One of the things I noticed today that I think I've seen a few times with him is if you want to be a, an elite level player, everything you do matters. Mm. Every movement you do, every non-movement you do. And there was one time when uh, Mackenzie read a play right and he breaks it up from Tajuri Shradi on the left side of their defense and he just pokes the ball away to his other defender. Then he doesn't move at all. Doesn't move one bit. And if you're Philly Union, you've regained possession of the ball and you are now trying to become an option. Because he doesn't move, they give away the ball. It goes out for a corner or a throw in because Philly tries to connect with McKenzie. And this is what I'm saying. Like, if you want to be elite, you you can't take plays off. And I want him to be elite. I think he can be elite. Yeah. And I hope that little things like that pop into his mind and he says, I got to do better with that. Yeah, that's great. I love that little nitpicking, right? Cause that, and that's not a negative word that it's not, no. that's not, I'm trying to say that, that little bit of improvement that we can still see from McKenzie. Since because we're talking he's about, really good. he is good, right? And since <laughs> right. we're talking about young, talented guys on the Philadelphia roster, we talked about Aronson already. And this will be the last thing I say before we move into that, the second half goal and, and a little bit from NYCFC in this match. Aronson is good with his movement. I think you highlighted that well. But he can still improve in how he progresses the ball. I feel like when Aronson gets the ball, and his pass map from this game showed it as well, when he gets the ball, rarely, if ever, is he going forward with it and playing a progressive, dangerous pass into the box or in the final third. That's just a quick something to keep your eye on as you're watching and as as listeners and we're watching Jordan Aronson throughout the rest of this tournament and hopefully the rest of 2020 and beyond with the union and wherever he ends up. How does he progress the ball after he receives it? Can I ask a quick question, Connor, acting that? If he is constantly the player running in behind in the attacking third, though, won't his passes typically be back across, back against the grain? So do those not count in your progressive pass? No, I think when you're talking about those progressive passes, those are valuable passes, but he's not making that movement beyond the back line every play. Right. Right. He's doing that. I was was curious. Yeah, that's a great point, though, because that's another way he provides value that doesn't show up on the pass map. So that's helpful to know when you're watching him. Um, Okay, so we've talked longer, I think, about the union than we thought we were going to in the second (laughs) half of this match before we move on to our second game of the show. NYCFC was in control. They really were. They took advantages of the natural weaknesses in the Union's 4-4-2 diamond shape, right? When the Union suck themselves over to the sideline and NYCFC are in possession, the weakness is on the weak side, right? Because Uh it's a vertical defensive structure, the weaknesses are on the weak side. The NYCFC would switch the ball over to the far side and attack, break through the midfield, which is then scrambling because they're, they're out of position and they can't adjust fast enough. NYCFC did that a couple of different times, and they also had some really nice positioning with how they broke through that 4-4-2 diamond as well. So a little bit of credit to NYCFC because I still do think they were the better team in this match, despite giving up that goal in the 63rd minute. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I thought that NYCFC showed such promise in key areas, but... It lacked something. I don't, I, I wish I could like put my finger on what exactly it is, but it didn't have that extra like, we're, we're going to win the game. Yeah. And it wasn't Am I wrong there. Saying it, that? No, not at all, because it wasn't there, Jordan. They, they outperformed the union unexpected goals in this match, but it, ultimately it was the union in that 63rd minute with Alejandro Bedoya who scored that game-winning goal. There was nobody on the left side of NYCFC's defensive shape marking Casper Shabelko or Bedoya in the box. So Montero, the left-sided central midfielder for the Union, just played a looping ball into the box for Bedoya, who settled it, 
Uh, the ball eventually bounced around in the box a little bit, fell back to Bedoya, who shoots and slots it past Sean Johnson. That was the deciding moment in this game. It was yeah. against the run of play. NYCFC, as I said, were the better team in this half. But ultimately, it didn't matter because New York could not break down that last layer of the Union's defense. You know what I find interesting? And I don't know if it's because we haven't had soccer in a while. We ha- There's no crowds to affect the maybe the tempo of the game or maybe visually feel like it's affecting the tempo. Mm. But I feel like the it's switched so many times which team is in control of the game in every single game that we've watched. It seems like it's gone back and forth so many times. And you were right. Coming out of the half, New York City FC was the better team, and they had more possession, and they were on the front foot. And then it felt like in an instant – Aronson and Montero got on the ball and it was just like, we're doing something. And this was leading up to that goal. It was probably in that earlier in that possession or the possession right before you could just tell that something had switched in the way that they were thinking in the midfield and they were connecting with each other. And it led to that long ball to the far post, which you were talking about, but it, it did seem like it was right after a switch in the momentum. And it was like, Philly was going to figure out a way to score. The water breaks, the subs, the, I mean, the weird game conditions, all of those things have got to be playing, uh, I've got to be impacting what we're seeing on the field in these games. Mm -hmm. All right. And I do, I, do you wonder too, if, if the non fans, if that makes us perceive, like, is perceive the right word, but makes us mm -hmm. watch the game in a way that we notice those things a little bit more or it doesn't feel. It's just a different atmosphere. Yeah, because when you have the fans there and things aren't going the the team's way, maybe they like get rowdy and loud and then help swing the momentum. I don't know, but for me, I'm I've just been so intrigued by how many times the possession has switched or, or the momentum has switched in these games. And we saw something similar in Thursday's night game: New England's one nil win over Montreal. We know less about these teams, Jordan, than we do about the Union and about NYCFC, or at least I do. So I think Mm -hmm. it'll be useful to sort of set the scene here and quickly go through the impact setup and the New England Revolution setup. Do you want to take Montreal here off the bat? I'll I'll take them and say that their setup, I thought, changed a couple different times, at least defensively, how they were going to set up. They they always defended in that five back, right? right. Like they are playing a five four one, or really what I saw a lot defensively was a five three two. Yep, I think it changed and, at halftime. Yeah, I think it did change at halftime, and I thought this was really interesting. The one thing that shocked me is Piet playing in a wing back role yeah. at the <laughs> beginning of the game. And it really did change. They they were not in the game in the first half. They couldn't find a rhythm. And if you want a rhythm and you're the Montreal impact, well who's the guy that's been doing yeah. that for you forever? It's Piet. It is. It was it was a strange sort of galaxy brain decision to have your best defensive midfielder at right wing back. And and to clarify here, he was Henri was sort of doing the Greg Berhalter, Tyler Adams thing yeah. where it's that inverted right back or right wing back in this case, where defensively he's defending wide, but offensively he's pushing central. And then that right winger or that right wing back at that point is, is not Piet. And that was a on the right side for Montreal, a really odd decision that had potential I'm not trying to deny yeah. that because if if the the advanced right wide player now Aquanco could have won some of his 1v1 dribble attempts 
with space that's created by Piet pushing centrally, then it would have looked great. And it's like, oh, this is this wonderful rotation to move a central midfielder inside and create space for the wide player. But Butner kept stopping him over and over and over again. And I think Henri had, and I think Henri had, had enough at halftime because he made that yeah. switch to move Piet inside permanently. Well, if you look at it too, if you're, but if you look at their players, well, their strength is in their spine. And yeah. in the middle of the field. And so you take Piet out of a place where he can deny them those entry balls into the players that can really punish you. Uh, it just was a, it confused me a little bit. And I think Montreal, when they did move him back into a holding mid position, uh, definitely it gave them a boost. It wasn't the end all be all, right? It didn't make all the difference, but it definitely changed. And I thought it was a good change. I'm bummed personally that that tactical decision didn't work from Henri because I, know, I like right. that sort of off the wall, really odd, unexpected decision making. Um, but it, it didn't work. It didn't pay off. And, and Henri did end up making that change at the half. But I, I wouldn't, I, I mean, he might try it again. I just think maybe it's not Piet, right? Maybe you leave him right. in the middle. It is, ah, man, there's no perfect way to do it though, because <laughs> I Wanyama, I guess, sort of has to be in there, even though I haven't yeah. seen much that's impressed me from him since coming over, but he's played in CCL and he's played in this MLS's back tournament. So let's cut him some slack. These are weird times, uh, but yeah. I haven't seen much. He doesn't look like he's got a whole lot left in those legs. Um, and Tidare, I think has to be in the middle of the field as well. So maybe it's just play an actual right wing back at right wing back sort of thing. But that's enough about Montreal for now. <laughs> New England, Jordan, they set up in sort of a 4-2-3-1, 4-3-3, lopsided 4-3-2-1. I mean, that's a lot of numbers. And basically <laughs> just me saying I'm not exactly sure. But I do know that it was Carles Hill and Gustavo Bo as the main attacking playmakers underneath Adam Buxka. Yes, exactly. And I, I think that attacking, they looked a little bit different than they did defensively. And we've talked about this before. One of the things I noticed with New England, which I hadn't so visibly noticed with other teams yet this tournament, is their ability to adapt their line of confrontation and their structure defensively throughout the game. I think early on in the game, they defended in a little bit more of a 4-4-1-1 and, you know, a little bit more of a lower block or a mid block. And then towards the end of the game, I saw them almost in a, a straight up like, Four, three, three with a inverted triangle and three front runners pushing high against that five back, right? Trying to get pressure against the high, the five back, which I thought was really interesting and something we've talked about how, um, and I know Bobby Warshaw has talked about it too, is just these different defensive looks not to give a team the same, uh, visual recognition throughout the entire game. And these two teams played before. These two teams yeah. played back in March, I believe, or late February, either one at this point. It, it really doesn't matter. But these two <laughs> teams played before. And so I was sort of expecting to see a similar approach from the Revs that we saw in that game where Bruce Arena had his team sit deep and look to attack almost exclusively in transition and force Montreal to break them down. We saw some of that, as you just highlighted, but that mm -hmm. wasn't all we saw. We saw a decent amount of the Revs on the ball in the attacking half, either attacking in transition from balls that they won high up the field or just having the ball in possession and letting Heal and letting Bo connect and combine. And they did that really, really well, not just on the goal, but in other moments in the second half, especially. When you're defending in a 5-3-2, you have to have a little bit more discipline on the spacing in between your players because the players that are out wide are going to have to be dealt by, dealt with by the wingbacks, right? So then 
those three central players have to have tighter seams between them. And I felt like Montreal was getting so stretched that it made it easy for New England to get on the ball and find a rhythm. And the more they found that rhythm, the more confident you could see them as they tried to slip a ball through or the gaps got bigger and then they had more room to work with. I feel like it was the wrong way to go against this New England side because it gave them so much confidence on the ball. There was just so much space out wide. And so imagine you're the Montreal Impact left left wing back, right? Okay. And that, mm-hmm. that is the side that the goal came down from the New England Revolution. So you're that wing back. Oftentimes that wing back had a player of his own to deal with and the Revolution would position another one of their attackers out wide as well or in that half space. So mm-hmm. then it's a 2v1. But none of the Montreal Impact central midfielders or forwards made really any move to go and help out that wing back. And that's exactly just, how the goal was scored. It is, right? So Scott Caldwell finds Carlos Heel in acres of space, like a lot of space yeah. on that right half space. Heel plays a right-footed ball, which caught me a little bit by surprise. I, I didn't <laughs> know he had a right foot, to be honest with you. He plays a right-footed ball into Bo, who is right at the edge of the box. Bo controls the ball with a nice little cutback against Fani and scores. It's that right-footed ball in that starts because he's in space, because there's no one there from Montreal to pick him up. And we saw that again and again in the second half. So if you're playing in this 5-3-2, I would say those three holding midfielders or those three lower set midfielders, right? Mm-hmm. You have to almost move on a string and you've got to go side to side, right? You have to go side to side. So yes, the, the wing back was occupied with, I think it was Brandon Bai who was mm-hmm. up pushing the field. High, yep. So that created a numerical advantage on the wing with Bai and Carlos Hill. So the, the wing back had to stay in that seam so he could press the outside back if need be and buy. But then that pressure, that second player from the midfield didn't slide quick enough. And then when he did slide, this is something that Carlos Hill does so well. He recognized as he's sliding, okay, I have to play this at the perfect timing to know that he's out of that gap to give uh, Gustavo Bo a little bit more time. And I mean, Gustavo Bo didn't have any time, right? He, he made, he pulled like he a rabbit out of the hat with yeah. that one. It was incredible. And, and I think that that was just a buildup of all the things and all of the momentum he had started to have on the ball because you could tell that he started to fill himself in the second half just with his ability to take players on. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think my main takeaway from this game and really all of the action from today is that Bo and Heel are two of the most dangerous attacking midfielders in the league. That's one. That's part one. And they have a connection. Yeah. Yesterday, Jordan, you talked about Lee Wynn and Rodolfo Pizarro coming off the bench from Miami and those guys thinking on the same level. We're seeing that again here in New England, but I would say at a higher level. We saw these two guys on the same page. They grew into it, obviously, as time went on. But Gustavo Bo and Carlos Hill are really, really hard to stop even when you don't give them a ton of space to start plays in like Montreal did. Yeah, I would heavily agree with that. And also why last night I was almost begging like this question is do Lee Wynn and Rodolfo Pizarro get more time together on the field, right? Because it did, they did grow into it and they needed time to in the second half really punish this Montreal impact team. Well, if you give that to those guys on Inter Miami, are they going to do the same thing? So that's what I was 
hinting at last night. And I think this, they were a perfect, perfect example today. Those two are so good. And I actually think that Gustavo Bo, uh, is an interesting player because he defensively doesn't have a lot of responsibilities. It doesn't seem like, which is interesting. I don't know what the top of the Revs defensive shape really is doing. And it didn't matter in this game <laughs> against Montreal, but that's going to be something to watch for in yeah, the future yeah. games of this tournament. I definitely am going to, but there was a lot of, um, a lot of interesting things I think that happened in that game. And I, I would agree. I, I like Thierry Henry coming in with a different look and I mean, a different look and saying he's not afraid to try something. Sure. And so I, I hope that whatever he tries next, um, will be better. Makes us think. <laughs> well, it just makes us think. Like, I think that's one of the things that is so cool is like, I had to think, okay, well, why would you put Piet there? Why would you do this? Okay, well, what's next? I don't know. And I'm kind of excited to find out. What a great lead-in um, for future Montreal Impact games. You got Jordan on the hook, uh, <laughs> Thierry Henry. Jordan, we've gone through these two games from Thursday, July 9th. We'll be back again tomorrow with more MLS action. This was fun. Let's this do it again. <laughs> we will. Thanks for listening, everybody. And Jordan, thank you for joining me. Thanks, yeah.